The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by the writer and critic Victoria Smith, who's known to those of you on social media under her Twitter handle at Glosswitch, and whose new book is Hags, The Demonisation of Middle-Aged Women. Victoria, welcome. Thank you. Now, this is a book that describes, at least in part, a very, very old phenomenon, but I'm wondering what it is to you that made it a book that was urgent to write now. What's the new twist, if you like, on the old story of witches and hags and scolds and gossips? I suppose the thing that made it particularly urgent to me was um, I'd not been a middle-aged woman before, so I'd kind of (laughs) viewed it from a particular way when I was younger. And then suddenly, when you get there, all these kind of stereotypes and these images, suddenly you're seeing them from the other side and thinking, oh, gosh, that's what it was like. But then at the same time, I think one of the things that made me particularly concerned about it. I mean, I I started thinking about it a few years ago, just when um, Karen was becoming really popular as an insult for particularly middle-aged white women and the way in which it was being used, not just to call out racism or to call out bad behaviour, but just to suggest that they were too loud and too entitled and too bossy. And a lot of this was being framed as a kind of intersectional feminist critique that actually it wasn't misogyny, it was actually feminism to kind of attack older women and say their views were out of date and to say that they're on the wrong side of history and needed to be quiet. And I found that particularly disturbing that on the one hand, you have a feminism that does have a solid critique of past misogyny and past ways in which women have been demonised, but then it can engage in that same demonisation now by kind of twisting the narrative somewhat. We think of sort of the mother-in-law jokes and the you know near past versions of that sort of demonization but i mean would you say that the sort of trad 70s version of that was that the difference here is that the trad 70s version was identified with a kind of conservatism and that these stereotypes are now being picked up by progressives or would be progressives or as you say feminists and indeed women in particular in a way that they haven't been before Yeah, I I felt, you know, as a child in the 70s and 80s, the kind of mother-in-law joke was something I identified with people of kind of my dad's generation and older, that they would make those comments about their wives or their mothers or their mother-in-laws. And um, I kind of associated it with old-style sexism, yet somehow this has become associated with kind of progressive discourse that actually um, demonising these women in that way It's not seen as a conservative traditionalist act. All that conservatism is kind of poured into them and they're identified with it. And it actually has changed my perspective as well, though, on what was going on when I was younger, I think. I think I did used to not have that sense of the woman who was characterised as the mother-in-law. Yeah, I'm thinking of kind of figures like in in sitcoms, like Sorry, like Timothy Lumsden's mum, you know, those characters, and you see them as types in real life. And it's only when you get older, you think there's a lot going on that denies older women have an inner life and kind of 
denigrates their work or treats the fact they do all this unpaid domestic labour as a kind of sign that it's their personality or that they're just associated with these values. Well, another reappraisal, which you, you start the book with, quite a bold one, is Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction, who becomes your kind of, I know, sort of totem, at least for the introduction of the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a kind of joke that me and a friend used to have about... Um, I mean, when we were younger, I can remember that um, this idea of the bunny boiler, the sort of mad ex-girlfriend that was always a kind of joke of the female stalker. You were terrified of being associated with that, terrified with being seen as that mad ex-girlfriend. And you sort of later see that most stalking isn't done by women. And it's kind of a way of controlling women by making them scared of that. The the phrase, I'm not going to be ignored, became a bit of a joke with me and this friend. We used to kind of add it to the end of emails and things because it's um women do have this feeling increasingly as they get older it's talked about quite a lot of becoming more invisible but at the same time demanding attention and being seen as entitled is really demonized so you're kind of stuck between these two poles of being meant to be invisible but if you do anything it's seen as really really overly visible and overly loud i mean it's it's a book that's absolutely kind of riddled with Catch 22s. But I mean, to start with your personal way into it, I mean, in the introduction, I was quite surprised that there's a certain amount of proleptic, you know, yes, I have this privilege here and I know it's going to get me in trouble for saying this. Did you, it's not quite defensive, but it's more like anticipating attack, if you see what I mean. Did it take a certain amount of, you know, screwing your courage, the sticking post to? approach the book head on? I mean, to the extent that you felt aware of having internalised some of these prohibitions? Yeah, I think so, because one of the ways in which, particularly through this figure of Karen, the entitled middle-aged white woman, one of the ways in which middle-aged women are being attacked is through this perception of privilege. And I am a middle-class white woman. I'm straight and I've, I've got degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. You know, I have all these privileges. Yeah, I didn't want to deny it. And I didn't want to make kind of that standard declaration of privilege and then just ignore it or just ignore it completely. Because I think that I did feel quite uncomfortable writing about the Karen phenomenon. Because on the one hand, privilege is real, but it's also it's being used against women in a way that is quite insidious. And it isn't being used to dismantle privilege. It's being used almost, I think, as a way of other people pretending that they can divest themselves of their own advantages, their own ways in which they're complicit in the exploitation of others by kind of loading it onto this figure of the wrong side of history privileged woman. And then at the same time, I also think um, some things are characterised as privileged that aren't. You know, I think this idea of entitlement, this idea of taking up too much space, it's actually... Some of it, I just think it's a response to female independence and a discomfort with it amongst people of my generation who have grown up with women who have more choices than the women who went before them had. And there's maybe these, there's still some discomfort with that, I think. One of the sort of fulcrums of the book seems to me to be looking back at the 90s era of what sometimes called third wave, but the sort of choice feminism or raunch feminism or girl power, that you were of the cohort that came up through that. And it feels like in writing this book, you're saying, Christ, we took a wrong turn there. 
Is that a fair characterization? I think in many ways, yes, we did. But I, I don't think it was entirely our fault. I think, you know, it's the kind of information and the representations of what second wave feminism was and did that came through to us. You know, they were very much sort of through popular culture and through the media. And there was a lot of demonization of what um, of second wave feminists and what second wave feminists did. So that I think the third wave started as a kind of pushing back against the mother and deciding that we could do it better and that actually maybe second wave feminists had been a bit prudish and had been overly judgmental and maybe you know they couldn't help it because that was a different time but we would correct things and we would be more liberal and the the rights that they'd won for us we would use them to become better than them in some way and then I think you get to a certain age and I mean, Astrid Henry was is one woman I quote in it. She wrote a book called Not My Mother's Sister about intergenerational relationships in feminism. And this was like in the early noughties, she was pointing out that once third wave feminists reach a certain age, they're suddenly classed as second wave feminists because they're just too old anyways. It's like third wave feminism became this movement that was associated very much with youth and sexiness and pushing back against the mother. And then you kind of, you age out of it almost like it's a conveyor belt that um, actually you're too old for feminism. Obviously, only once you're on the other side, you start to question that and think, actually, how wise was that? Because it should be something that's there throughout your whole life. That ageing issue, maybe the heart of the book is this idea that I think you express it in one sense, talking about the difference between a cohort and a life cycle analysis, but that the life cycle that you're a woman is born into a female body and that this has to shape feminism. But we seem to have a feminism that's trying to get round that. Yes. Obviously, these are generalisations. You know, there are younger women who see the importance of the female body within feminism. And there are some older women who um, are still trying to deny it. But in general, I think as women age, you become more aware of the way in which um, inequality and discrimination it's kind of cumulative and it's affected by different things that happen because your body has a different life cycle to men's bodies. And I think sometimes, you know, this idea that middle-aged women are, you know, the phrase turf is often used for those who believe, as I do, that biological sex is politically salient and very important to feminism. And it's used to suggest that this belief that sex matters is specific to this generation because they've got old ideas and they maybe weren't very well educated. And once they're not around anymore, there'll be a replacement generation of women who don't believe that because they've got all these fluid but Larian ideas about um, how gender trumps sex. But what I actually think is all women realise that, well, most women realise that sex is more important as they get older, I thought the body wasn't as important. I thought I could kind of identify out of it when I was younger. But experiences such as pregnancy and menopause change your perspective of that. Well, you quote somebody saying that you think men have a sort of, you know, they step into the world in their bodies in a certain way once, I guess, they reach adolescence. And it's, it's a sort of uninterrupted sense of identity for them lifelong and that women have these life stages that chop and change. Is it is it that clear cut? No, I don't think it is. I think you know men can have very complex relationships with their bodies because of the particular expectations that um, masculinity imposes on them. I, mean, I think there is a quote, it's from Robert Wilson's Feminine Forever book. And I mean, it's a really highly sexist 1960s book. 
that he wrote to promote HRT, but he he promoted it by suggesting that when women reach the reach the menopause, they stop being proper women, they stop being properly feminine because their bodies just kind of break down. He says something about their femininity crumbles in ruins. But then he says of men that their lives continue in smooth continuity, like they never change, you know, they're just men all the way through, whereas women kind of break down. And um, I think this is kind of more insulting to women than it is to men, but it's not particularly helpful to men either because men have all sorts of stuff going on with their own bodies. It strikes me reading across the different chapters you deal with because you talk about labour, about bodies, about sex, about fiscal privilege. You know, you, you look at a whole lot of these things. But one of the things that pulls them together is that there's this sort of divide in a way, which is maybe the divide between second wave and, and fourth wave, that your analysis is sort of saying, look, we need to go back to an acknowledgement that a materialism rather than an idealism, perhaps, and an almost kind of Marxism idea that your class into which you involuntarily fall, it should be the nature of your politics rather than a kind of postmodern choice that you can choose or identify or define yourself into a different... I mean, it's sort of collective rather than an individualistic position. Yeah, I think I think there is this fear of the body and, and also this fear of dependency as well. I think some of that does get loaded onto kind of this figure of the mother and this figure of the older woman. But I think we all need to accept that our choices about where we stand in relation to other people are limited and we don't get to dictate them, we don't get to choose them all the time. And I think that's quite an unattractive idea to a lot of younger people who've grown up trying to create themselves online. And I think that can fuel this kind of anger at this... It is the kind of judgmental mother-in-law who's saying, no, you can't just like reinvent your entire self into being this character who chooses their sex and chooses what privileges they do and don't have. You know, you are where you are in life and you have to kind of do the best you can. And do you think the viciousness of the rejection is psychologically rooted in that, that the, if you like, a younger generation that does not want to become its mother thinks that it can somehow sort of kill its mother in image. I mean, I think you talk about a purification ritual. You do find quite a lot of... Edwin Rich wrote about it, and more recently, like Jane Schilling, when she wrote um, The Stranger in the Mirror, there's this kind of... A lot of older women will look back and remember seeing almost in feminism not this kind of um, shared identity, this solidarity amongst women, but almost this looking at the women who went before you and think, I'm not going to be that, I'm never going to end up like you. So then it creates this real desire to sort of rid yourself of any association with them because they can be associated with being trapped and being controlled and not being free. And, And more recently, I think this has become, well, not even recently, I think it for a long time, but in particular ways now, it's associated with the body and saying that this idea that you you are female and you stay female forever is a way of um, limiting you. And this is something that older women are trying to impose on you. I mean, I spoke at a woman's place event a year ago. There were some young women out there who had placards protesting against forced womanhood. This kind of, yeah, they saw us as these older women who wanted to force womanhood on them when it's just um this is just who you are that's you you are women it, it was very odd <laughs> well in aa they have to say you know give us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change courage to change things we can and wisdom to know the difference yeah 
Yeah, I think we do, we disagree on the difference there. Yeah, exactly. You talk in the chapter about work and about unpaid labour and about the space of a woman who's past menopause. There's a, a section of the book that effectively the role that patriarchy has allotted for the middle-aged or older woman is effectively caring for others. But I'm interested in you zeroing on this hashtag be kind. How do you read that? I, mean, I think that it's used in ways that are quite insidious. And that there is a real difference between care work and work that is related to often the body, other people's bodies, their needs. And then this kind of hashtag be kind that's often used to police people's speech and often used to get them not to talk about the body and not to talk about those needs. It's a kind of outsourcing of kindness, like this kind of lecturing older women on how to be kind and what to say and what they can and can't say and how they should be inclusive is a kind of alternative to trying to change things so you'd have to muck in a bit more with the kind of unrecognised work that they're doing. You know, care work, so much of it is invisible and unpaid, whereas be kind culture is very performative. It's very much about what you put in your email bio and putting pronouns in your bio or the language that you use with others and kind of lecturing other people on what they can and can't say and calling people out whereas actual care work is you know it's just not seen most of the time and is that in a, in a sort of wider sense than just the body a kind of move towards demeterialization idealism that kind of material analysis that says what matters is what physical spaces you can go into, what physical work you're doing unpaid and unnoticed, you know, how you go about, if you like, creating justice or remedying injustice, and that it's become about language and about ideas rather than about, you know, actual hard yards. I think it has for some people. And it's a very privileged way of seeing how you bring about justice. I mean, it isn't really a way of bringing about justice because so much injustice is just related to the material world and what people do don't have but um and then people make these incredibly tenuous connections between language and sort of what is happening in the real world in terms of violence and control of other people and you know saying um if you don't use those particular pronouns if you don't use those particular words you're putting something into the air which will lead to great violence against other people yet at the same time it doesn't apply to um the kind of language that is being used against older women or the kind of language you'd get in pornography. It's very selective what is considered essential kind language, which will somehow magically change how everyone is positioned in relation to one another. Speaking of violence, you have an extraordinary statistic in the book or, or mention the book when you're talking about in a very bleak chapter near the end about the real world violence and violence against women, that until 2018... The National Crime Survey didn't include murder statistics once the woman was past the age of 59, I yeah, think. Uh, yeah. What earth was that? I don't, you know, I, I got to the bottom of why that was, but it, it is absolutely bizarre. And you do talk about that thing that, that actually older women are more likely rather than less likely. You know, the stereotype of violence against women often is particularly stranger, not intimate violence against women, is, you know, a younger woman being attacked on the street and all that stuff about wearing high heels and all the rest of it. But older women are more likely to be attacked, is that right? Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a lot with older women that is... There's a surprising number of sons who are violent against mothers. 
and grandmothers. And there is quite a few killings of older women are put down as, as kind of mercy killings. It does not really work in the other way around with killings of older men. And is that, because you think, the framing of that is that an older man would expect to be looked after and a woman who's unable, who needs to be looked after is matter out of place? I talked to Karen Ingala-Smith about it, you know, who did the Feminicide Census and the Counting Dead Women Project. And saying it's, it's quite hard to kind of definitively say in any one individual case that wasn't really a mercy killing, you know, you just didn't want to care for her. Often they are scenarios, you know, if a woman's got Alzheimer's, of a woman's very, it can be very distressing for all the people involved in it. But there is something about men do this to wives and women aren't doing it to husbands. And it does fit in with attitudes or experiences of caring across lifetimes as well. And sometimes men just seem less prepared for the carer role at that stage in life. They've not socialised into it. You talk about, as you said earlier, that one of the lines of attack on middle-aged women is turf. And obviously some of the most violent rows that you describe in this book are over this issue of trans rights, which I know you've been quite involved with as a gender-critical feminist. I mean, that was certainly where I first came across you on social media. And so how much... Was this book sparked by that particular culture war issue or whatever you want to call it? I mean, that has been one of the main ways in which older women and and older feminists have been told that their views don't count and that they're on the wrong side of history. There's a bit in the book about the way Suzanne Moore was treated when she left The Guardian and was kind of told, well, um, could you not say that um, there's a younger generation who have more enlightened views on sex and gender and, you know, your views are going to be in the past. And there is something, I think, particularly, um, well, I'd say something quite enraging about being told that as a woman in your 40s or 50s, your view of what a woman is, is a bit outdated and teenagers, you know, even male teenagers have a better idea of what a woman is than you do, because, um, yeah, it's incredibly insulting. And so I, I think that did kind of drive my, or some of the anger that's in the book as well. And then so much of the economic and structural issues that women are facing in midlife to do with, um, you know, the pay gap and to do with um, things that are happening to their bodies and to do with the menopause. These are all related to um, being female and things that have happened in your life because you're female, because of your life cycle. And then you have younger people telling you, oh, it's completely irrelevant. We don't really know what sex anyone is. Have you thought of clownfish and all this stuff? And it's just, it's quite maddening, I think. Well, I mean, I guess that comes into the the cohort versus life cycle thing you talk about. Can you you unpack that a little? Because I think it's really... Interesting distinction, and it seems to me to be at the centre of, of your book, if I understand it right. Yes, I was something I really started thinking about when I read Bobby Duffy's book, Generations. This idea that sometimes there are viewpoints that you associate with, you could say, middle-aged Generation X women have these regressive ideas about sex and gender because they didn't get enough queer theory when they were at university or whatever. Well, actually, um, you know, I was at university in the 90s and there was plenty of queer theory around then but there is this idea that um, today's middle-aged women don't have as progressive ideas and it's generation specific it's just their cohort whereas I think there are some views which we may hold as generation x's which are specific 
to the time when we were born and specific to the particular political things that were going on and particular education ideas that we got. I think ideas related to the body can be more the kind of ideas that develop across your lifetime and actually their beliefs that most middle-aged women might get to by the time they get to there because they go through experiences which actually keep repeating and happen again and again. 80% of women over 45 will have had children, uh, will have given birth. And, and that does change your attitude towards your body and what it means politically. And it changes your understanding of how your biology affects your social position and affects your entire life. Um, women who are hedging towards 50, you know, they will be going through perimenopause or menopause, and that will change your attitude towards your body. I think sometimes sexism or misogyny can be understood in terms of little discrete events like being attacked or experiencing discrimination in the workplace or, you know, one thing happening. But actually there are things that accumulate and build up and up. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about in the chapter on unpaid work. You know, it's it's something Marianne Stevenson said. You can look at your mum when you're younger and think, oh, I wouldn't end up doing all the drudgery and, you know, that's never going to happen to me. But it's not something you ever choose to be. It's all these little things happen. You know, if you fall behind in terms of income when you go on maternity leave, it makes more sense for you to take time off to do care work a bit later. And you're, you're gradually falling behind step by step by step. So then I think as a middle aged women, a lot of us can understand sexual inequality in terms of life cycle, in terms of accumulation And in that sense, it starts to make no sense to talk about discrimination faced by pregnant people or menstruators or gestators, as if there are things that happen when you're at one stage and then they stop happening because you're out of it. They're happening all the time because you're on this path because of the body you have. I mean, to return briefly to the trans question, why is it, do you think, I I don't have any sort of special agenda at all with this question, but just to ask, it's an issue that at least ostensibly will always affect a comparatively small portion of the population. Why is it, do you think, it's become the kind of bellwether issue over which there's been a huge split in feminism, there's been a huge cultural split generationally? You know, why is it so much the central sort of row of our time? I think within feminism, well, quite a lot of it to me is that women are talking about themselves and they're talking about their lives and their bodies and why they matter, you know, and they're not talking about this tiny minority of trans people. But all some people hear is, you're not centering me, you're excluding me. You know, it's this kind of, one of the reasons that I first started to find it a difficult issue was this idea that you have to acknowledge your cis privilege and you have to acknowledge that you um, identify with the gender you were assigned at birth. And this is kind of not really about trans people specifically. It's about how women are meant to describe themselves as a class and how we're meant to talk about ourselves. And, you know, whether we can say things like um, women get pregnant or women need cervical smears and kind of it's how we talk about ourselves as women and how we connect as women and what we see as having in common. And, And one of the things that I wanted to stress in the book is that I think it's quite important that we see the things we have in common that are to do with the body and to do with life cycle give us a way in to also look at the things that are different in our lives to do with things like class and race and economic position. And all of this is women talking about ourselves. But to do that, you start being called exclusionary because 
you're not twisting your language to imply that actually there is no such thing as a female sex class or there is no such thing as um, a female body. And I think that is one of the things that a lot of feminists find really unacceptable. You're not to be able to talk about ourselves in that way. That question of women gathering to talk about themselves among themselves. I mean, you come onto Mumsnet as a one of those sort of very divisive issues in the culture wars. I think, you know, one of my favourite bits of the book is you talk about why the biscuit question, the famous biscuit question is important. It's probably the only piece of writing I've ever seen in which the biscuit question Judith Butler are brought into very close collocation. Can you explain for our listeners what the importance of the biscuit question is and why you know, what it tells us about Mumsnet as a community. I think one of the interesting things about Mumsnet is people have found it quite hard to place in that, on the one hand, it's been treated as frivolous, silly, middle-class mummies gathering to talk about, you know, how to get their kid into the best school and what the best baby food is. And on the other hand, it's suddenly become this, like, evil hotbed of radical anti-trans activism that must be censored because they're all being... um, it's a gateway to the far right. And it's all these terrible political things. As one person I interviewed said, you know, how can we be both? We're either these complete idiots who only care about um, whether our children has got the right organic vegetables or are we these evil plotters who are, want to wreak doom on everyone? And I think um, women are very aware of this kind of dual status that they have when they go on places like Mumsnet. I think the biscuit questions, it's interesting because it kind of plays on this idea that, I mean, Sarah Peterson wrote about it in the politicisation of Mumsnet, that politicians would go on and they expect an easy ride because it was just the mummies and the mummies could be fobbed off with some platitudes about childcare or whatever. You know, and they'd get asked, what's your favourite biscuit? You know, and it was this kind of play on that's all mummies think about. They just want to know what you like. But actually, politicians you could see that they would get really worried about it because the biscuit would be like, it became emblematic of who you were. You you know, what does the biscuit you choose say about your class or your relationship to masculinity or your relationship to economics? What does it say about where you shop? So actually it captured quite a lot. And I think it showed this very clever way in which um, the women on Mumsnet could play on this idea that they were really trivial and frivolous to actually make politicians really uncomfortable and get them to kind of reveal quite a lot about themselves in ways that just asking straight questions couldn't. Because, you know, women on Mumsnet are very self-aware about what people think about Mumsnet, and they're also very funny about it as well. That's Mumsnet, the sort of great hive of dangerous radical terrorists. There has been, in terms of an attack on gender-critical community, I mean, just recently we had Billy Bragg saying, look, you know, this gender-critical feminist is marching alongside Nazis. Where is that collocation coming? Why is there a sort of view among self-declared progressives that gender-critical movement is allied with a regressive Christian conservative position? I mean, I think as, I mean, as Sheila Jeffries quoted her in the book, as she was writing about sexual purity movements in the past, you sometimes have instances where um, feminists are arguing one thing and sort of far-right or Christian or, or fundamentalist activists are arguing another and they may sort of superficially seem to be saying the same thing but it's coming from a completely different place and the end goals are completely different. I think you know the idea that biological ex- sex exists I think this and it's politically salient and on that I probably you know Donald Trump probably thinks it as well but there are lots of things I disagree with him about. One thing that makes me quite angry about the situation 
at the moment is that the left have created this massive open goal for the far right and for the homophobes and for misogynists by basically tying their ideas of what feminism is and what liberty for gay, lesbian and bisexual people is to the denial that biological sex exists and matters. And, you know, there are far-right people who are absolutely going for that because it to them it proves, oh, well, the idea of, like, sexual equality was always founded on a lie, it was always founded on denying reality, whereas actually that's not necessary and that's not true. And um, it's incredibly frustrating for feminists to be told, look, you either go along with Biddy Bragg and Owen Jones and people like that who were saying biological sex doesn't really exist or we can't really define it and you can't have spaces of your own, you can't have that, or you're with the far right and you've got to choose one or the other. You know, it's almost like this kind of um, jealous boyfriend situation. Like they don't believe that if you're not with them, you're not with someone else. And actually, I think it's really important that feminists, you know, and groups like Women's Place kind of hold the line in the middle and say, no, we're not with either of you. We have our own beliefs about what matters and and that we're very clear about what these beliefs are. Is there something in there too of the this idea that if middle-aged women are organising, someone's put them up to it, someone's behind them, someone's funding them? Yes, yeah, very much so, that they can't be doing it off their own back. I mean, it was um, Kiri Tunks that I interviewed for the book. She said, you know, she found it quite amazing the way in which, um, you know, she'd been doing trade union work and organising politically all her life. But when she started doing this just on behalf of women as a group, it was suddenly like, where are you getting your money from? What's really going on? Who's really pulling the strings behind this? And people suggest this about Mumsnet. But, you know, as I found, I read um, as an autobiography from someone who'd been at Greenham Common, and she was saying, like, she found that at the start when they were trying to organise, you know, journalists didn't believe that it was just women doing things. You know, it must be someone else doing it. Women can't be kind of doing these things on their own you know, with their own kind of housekeeping money. It was the Russians in that case, wasn't it? Yes. (laughs) This time it's the American right. Also interested in something you talk about, which I think kind of cuts into this question, you know, which the book deals with very elegantly of intersectionality and what it might mean, that in the 90s and noughties, you know, you pick up that sketch in Little Britain where you say it's, it's designed apparently to ridicule racism and sexism and reactionary attitudes but it actually smuggles in ageism dressed up as something progressive. Yes. I mean, Little Britain's really... You you had all these sketches sort of mocking working-class girls. You know, you had blacking up. You had the whole I'm a lady sketch mocking trans people. And then you have in the middle of it um, the, the WI women who are sort of representatives of bigotry because they're middle-aged women and they're testing cakes at these... And they can't bear the idea that the cakes might have been made by someone gay or someone who's an immigrant. And and it's almost this kind of way of, oh, if I'm laughing at the bigoted older women, I can't be a bigot myself. It's kind of it's all projected onto them as kind of representatives. And it kind of convinces the viewer that and all the other sketches, when it might look like they're laughing at working class people or trans people, they're doing it ironically, whereas the middle aged WI ladies are too you know, they wouldn't know irony. They, you know, they're the real bigots here. It was actually very effective. I, I, I know you've got children yourself. Are you, do you have daughters or sons? I have sons. Yeah, you have sons. I see you haven't haven't quite got the problem with the matricidal daughter no. 
ageing into choice feminism. But how do you see this as playing out? I mean, how do you see, if you like, this cohort divide? Is there a way of, if you like, building a sort of generational solidarity, given the the drivers that you describe very elegantly, the sort of psychological drivers for you know, younger women who think this is the generation in which we sort it all out and the older generation got it wrong. Is there a way of getting around that and fixing it, do you think? I think it's really difficult looking at sort of attitudes that women in the second wave had towards first wavers and the way in which, you know, someone like Adrienne Rich was writing about views of her own mother in the 70s. You know, it's something that repeats itself and that happens generation after generation, this kind of mistrust of the mother and this desire to cut all ties until you get there yourself and you realise the generation below you is wanting to cut all ties with you. I mean, and it's there in fairy tales, you know, it's such a long-standing thing. So it is really difficult. With the feminist activist groups that I've been involved with, such as like Philia Woman's Place and you know, Women Talk Back in Bristol, you know, which is a student group, you know, there are younger women who are getting involved in the kind of activism that's going on at the moment. And in many ways, it's really, really hard for them. It's sort of harder for them than I think it was when I was a student because, um, you know, attitudes, particularly surrounding sex work and trans activism, they're so rigid. I think it's quite dangerous for younger women to express more radical feminist views these days. And it's also, I found it quite hard to write about it in a way that I really struggled with writing the book. I could almost hear my younger self, like, hearing it as patronising and dismissive and thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe you grew up to become one of those old shrews when, you know, I thought you'd be better than that, you know, that kind of thing. And it's and I read one review, well, I didn't read the full review of the book, but it said it was patronising, which kind of made me really worry a lot. But then I thought, I, I don't really know how we can talk about that without having to say really difficult things that feel like we're judging one another and that feel patronising because it's very hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a quote from Maureen Freely's What About Us that I used at the end of the book where she's describing, um, she goes shopping with her daughter and her daughter wants the dress that she's tried on. And she says to her daughter, but the thing is, by the time you're big enough to fit it, you won't want it. And her daughter gets really angry. Like, how do you know I won't want it? Like, how do you know everything there is to know about me? And, you know, more freely describes suddenly feeling, oh, my God, I've turned into my mum, sort of knowing all this stuff. And and how do you get around it? And it's really, really hard. Well, it's always hard, isn't it, to say, I, I know more than you because I'm older than you. It's really hard to say that. And then obviously there are things that younger women experience that are cohort specific that older women don't know and aren't experiencing. But we have to distinguish between the two and talk to one another about it. You mentioned the argument about sex work. I mean, you make a very good point, I think, that the argument between so-called you know, sex positive and sex work exclusionary feminists is one that's actually generations old. Yes. It's not a split in feminism that's been invented by this new cohort, is it? No, it's been going on. I mean, Sheila Jeffries, um, the spinster and her enemies, she tracks it sort of going back into the 19th century. And I think Susan Flutie, when she writes American Electra, it's this kind of tension between... Um, the old, the women who are the kind of characterised as the frigid prudes and the kind of younger, more imaginative women who think there'll be a different way when actually they're both kind of caricatures because it's a real struggle to find where to align yourself. Yeah. As you write throughout the book, all of this 
division between women serves the patriarchy. How did the patriarchy get quite so effective? I mean, leaving aside all moral judgment, I read your book and I think, Christ, this has been very, very well set up for my convenience. I mean, I think, you know, I, I was talking about this with a friend last week, and it's something that I think has come through recently in um, Louise Perry and Mary Harrington's books, it's sort of the case against the sexual revolution and feminism against progress. I think there is an issue to do with bodies and to do with the fact that men are stronger than us, that feminism has not wanted to confront. And it's something I still find quite difficult to think about. Yeah, there is a little bit of me that thinks at the end of the day, whatever ideas we put forward in the context of a household, if it's a man and a woman, and you want to talk about who does the unpaid work and who does what, there is a degree of control that men will always have because on an individual level, they can force us to do things physically, mostly. And, you know, I, I don't know the way around that, but I think that is a kind of... It's something I'm still thinking about, uh, how we manage that, really. I think it's something that feminists need to talk about, and I think it's related to this kind of body denialism that has... We don't want to talk about the body, because for a long time we've associated sex difference and acknowledging it with kind of intellectual suggesting that men are intellectually or morally superior to us, which I don't think they are, but they have a physical advantage over us, which I think needs to be recognised more. And do you think the desire among younger women particularly to essentially fit in with the male agenda is somehow deep down driven by a, a kind of unconscious fear? I think there is fear there, yes. So Sometimes it does feel a bit like trying to square a circle, trying to not acknowledge that that reality is there sorry I feel that's very negative viewing things isn't it but it's kind of it's very, the thing that excitement reminded me of was when I read your accounts of what Andrea Dworkin and many of the most prominent and clear-eyed second waivers had to say was it coming round after 1990s feminism with you know Robert Conquest's book about Stalin's great terror when he was did a second edition and he was asked to retitle it. And the publisher said, what do you want the new title to be? And he said, I want to call it I Told You So, You Fucking Fools. <laughs> you feel there's, a, there's room for a new edition of Dworkin that <laughs> sit alongside this? I do feel there is a kind of reading a lot of um, older feminist works, which I didn't get into reading until I was sort of in my late 30s, early 40s. Particular Adrian Rich, I think, had a major impact on me. It was a bit, it was a bit like, oh, I can't believe women were writing this and I never knew about it. And there is this kind of, um, Audre Lorde writes about it, that feminists end up reinventing the wheel because you don't sort of get the things that they're, pass, they're not passed down. And then you end up thinking, oh, I don't really know what Dworkin said, but everyone said she was a bit extreme, so we'll do it better kind of thing. And then you, there is a coming back to them later on. But yeah, I sometimes wondered like what she would think of do you do you read much feminist theory when you were younger or was it something you came to later i mean i'm interested that for example one of the most toted feminists you know that kimberly crimshaw who's now very buzzy because intersectionality is one of the great totems as you say you know i've actually read kimberly crimshaw and she doesn't say what the people who bang on about intersectionality actually say she said so when i when i was younger i didn't read a huge amount of feminism i think i mean i grew up in a small town up in Penrith in Cumbria and um, the one book I used to look at in Smith's that was The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf but I didn't even buy it I just was quite curious about it and obviously there wasn't the internet or anything 
when I was at university, I did a master's and a PhD in languages and literature. And I was around people who were writing about queer theory and feminism and gender studies. And I didn't actually get into that. And, and it, I find it weird looking back that there were quite a lot of male students who were writing essays on what is a woman and it's really complicated. And looking back now, I think, why didn't I find that a bit annoying? But at the time, I felt I didn't have the confidence. I somehow thought it was kind of going over my head a little bit. And I kind of concentrated on writing on, um, well, I wrote about romanticism and alcohol at the time. But um, I thought gender was this incredibly complicated thing that, and I was just a boring old woman and it wasn't for the likes of me, whereas these flamboyant men around me had these really complex ideas and I wasn't going to go anywhere near it kind of thing. And obviously their ideas would be much better than second wave feminist ideas because they were kind of like ideas they associated with my mum's generation. You know, and I had all these reasons not to kind of engage with it, which um, I wish I had read these things when I was younger, because I think they could have changed. Well, they might not have changed what I wanted to write about and study, but I think they could have changed my attitude to my body and where I stood in the world as well, because some of the writing that came out of the second wave is really yeah, I don't agree with all of it because, I mean, it doesn't agree with each other. You know, there's lots of debate there, but it's really imaginative and transformational. Very good. Well, your book is a very full and interesting reading list of that in addition to doing its own work. So I'm very grateful to have read it and I hope more people do and the hopes help to bind the sisterhood together across the generations <laughs> rather than fermenting rows between them. Um, thank you very much, Victoria Smith, for your time. Thank you very much.